So Father, we come to you now, and that is our request, Lord, that you would be our vision. God, as we open your word today, we ask that your face would be all that we see. We ask that your glory would be all that we seek, and that everything we do would flow from the identity that you have entrusted to us. Now, that's our desire as we open this word this morning. We want to see you. Lord, don't let us be like those who have eyes, who see without really seeing. We want to see you. So, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you give us this morning supernatural eyes to see your word, to hear your word as you would have us hear your word today, receive your word as you would have us receive it today. And fathers, we consider what it means to be peacemakers. We remember that your son, Jesus, at the greatest possible cost to himself, stepped into the time and space of human history to make peace with sinful man by the blood of his cross. This is the work that you call us to today. So Father, help us to be faithful in fulfilling that work of being peacemakers as you call us to be. So Lord, will you speak to us now a word that will edify your church and glorify your name. Sanctify us, Father, in truth. Your word is truth. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You can go ahead. And have a seat. And uh, as you find your seats this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bible. Matthew chapter 5 is where we'll be together this morning, uh, primarily in verse 9. If you're our guest, uh, my name is Taylor Burgess, and I serve here at Cross as lead pastor. We're honored to have you worshiping here with us today. And um, what we have been doing as a church family for the last couple of months is studying the Sermon on the Mount for Matthew chapters 5 through 7. This is something we expect that we're going to be doing together for the rest of the year. And during the summer, we have been studying the first several verses of the Sermon on the Mount, which are known to us as the Beatitudes, looking at one at a time over the course of the last um, several weeks. So today we'll pick up right where we left off last week um, in Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. I will believe it or not, uh, tomorrow morning, 8.30 in the morning, at the age of 34 years old, I'm finally going to have my last three wisdom teeth removed. And um, this is something I've been putting, on for, putting off for like over a decade. Um, the army took out one of mine uh, over 10 years ago. I wanted them to take all four. And the dentist said, there's no need. Those other three are not going to cause you problems. Narrator. They're causing problems. So tomorrow morning, uh, 8.30, I'm going to go do this. And the way I have primarily dealt with this for the last decade is by not dealing with it. Um, I, I'm really not really interested in, in going through this process as, as I've already had to do one time. And, you know, unfortunately, whenever you talk publicly on a weekly basis, there's never a good time to have something like this done. And, and so, but fortunately, uh, Dustin's preaching next week. Dave is preaching the following week. I've got a couple of weeks to recover there. And, and so I, I've dealt with this largely for the last decade by not dealing with it. But I'm, I'm now forced to deal with it because I'm starting to have some other complications. And when it comes to engaging conflict with, with other people, uh, oftentimes it literally and figuratively feels like pulling teeth. 
And, and I think depending on your personality, you might actually choose to have the teeth pulled above having to deal with relational conflict with others, right? Like some of us, this is just not within our sphere of, of what we like to do at all. And so, uh, so I'll go do this tomorrow morning. I'm finally going to deal with this head on. And as followers of Jesus, he calls us to be peacemakers. He calls us to be peacemakers. We live in a world, as Matt prayed just a few moments ago, that, that suffers from the absence of peace, suffers from the lack of spiritual peace, suffers from the lack of relational peace. We, we're a world that knows nothing but conflict, and the only way that we can deal with it is by dealing with it. Jesus calls us to be peacemakers. Uh, the Bible makes over 400 references to peace. In Judges chapter six, Gideon builds an altar to the Lord and he names it, the Lord is peace. Romans 15 and 16, Paul calls God the God of peace. It was prophesied of Jesus centuries before he came onto the scenes in Isaiah nine, that he would be the prince of peace. So church, we need to understand peace is not just what God offers, peace is who our God is. It's who he is. So it shouldn't surprise us whenever we open Matthew 5, 9 to see Jesus say, blessed are the peace makers, for they shall be called sons of God. God himself is a God of peace and our calling as followers of Christ is to make peace in a world that has no knowledge of peace. And the reason our world has no peace are twofold and simple. Our world doesn't know peace because of Satan and our world doesn't know peace because of sin. Every conflict that exists for you relationally, every conflict that exists between nations, every conflict that exists spiritually, all of it exists because of Satan and all of it exists because of sin. Every conflict that exists between God and man exists because of man's disobedience and every conflict that exists between man and God or man with each other is because of Satan because his work is to divide. If the work of Christ followers is peacemaking, then you could say that Satan's work is the opposite and it's peace breaking. Satan is a peace breaker. Christ calls us to be peacemakers. And what Matthew 5, 9 shows us is that every true follower of Christ will be a peacemaker who pursues spiritual and relational reconciliation as a public witness to the watching world. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. So four questions that we're going to answer about uh, this passage together this morning. Here's the first. First question, who is a peacemaker? Who is a peacemaker? Now, if you've been here for several weeks, you already know the answer to this question. We've seen this pattern developing as we've studied the Beatitudes. Each one of the Beatitudes builds on the others. The Beatitudes are not independent statements. The Beatitudes are interdependent statements. Each Beatitude is connected to the other. So the Beatitudes are not describing several different groups. The Beatitudes are describing the same person. They're describing the whole of the Christian experience. This is what a whole Christian looks like is what we find in the first verses of the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the best ways to look at the Beatitudes is to view them as genuine evidences of saving faith. So if you were to ask the question, how could I know if I am truly in Christ? How might I know if someone else is truly in Christ? We could look to the Beatitudes. So we ask the, the question, who is a true follower of Christ? Well, true followers of Christ, we've seen the last several weeks, are poor in spirit. True followers in Christ are those who mourn over their sin. True followers of Christ are humble and meek. They hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. True followers of Christ are merciful. Josiah showed us last week, true followers of Christ are pure in heart. And as we'll see today, true followers of Christ are peacemakers. 
So that's one way to answer the question, who is a peacemaker? It's by simply saying it's the same person we've been talking about for the last several weeks. It's the same person that we see in verses three through eight. But the simplest way to answer the question, who is a peacemaker, is by a very simple answer. It's every Christ follower. Every Christ follower is called to be a peacemaker. Now understand that this is regardless of your temperament, this is regardless of your personality, that this is regardless of uh, whether or not you like conflict. If the work of Satan is, is peace breaking, then the work of followers of Christ is peace making. Now let, let's put all of this in its immediate context because as one of the dangers on teaching the Beatitudes one at a time is that we start to uh, disassociate them from the rest of the Beatitudes that surround. So last week, what Josiah showed us is what it means to be pure in heart. The work of peacemaking is the natural overflow of a heart that has been purified by God. If we have no desire to make peace, if we have no desire to be at peace with others, if we have no desire to be at peace with God, then it may be evidence that our hearts are not truly pure. Purity and peace go hand in hand with one another. This is what the writer of Hebrews had to say in Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone. Everyone say everyone. If you do a deep Greek term study of the word everyone, it means everyone. Be at peace with everyone. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So the command isn't to purity or peace. The command is for purity and peace. And one of the evidences that we are truly spiritually pure is that we strive for relational peace. Understand, if you are content in your life with divisiveness, you are content with uh, resentment, if you're content with hostility, if you're content with bitterness and grudges that you're holding against others, it's evidence that we're not truly walking with Christ. Because all true Christians strive for peace. Every Christ follower is called to be a peacemaker. Second question then, what is a peacemaker? What specifically is a peacemaker? What is the substance of our peacemaking? R.C. Sproul has given a good uh, reflection here. He says, the peacemakers that Jesus has in view here are those who bring true peace to bear without compromising integrity or truth or justice. Now, this is a really important distinction for us to make. A peacemaker is not someone who pursues unity at all costs. A peacemaker, as Jesus intends for us to be, is someone who pursues unity without sacrificing truth and integrity and justice in the process. So being a peacemaker is, is not about ignoring realities of situations in a can't we all just get along type of way. You know, oftentimes, I think particularly in American culture, we see calls to peace as weakness. Like we study the, the nature of our, of our history, and it's easy to step back and say, listen, we didn't become the nation we are by making peace with our enemies, right? So, so oftentimes we, we see that to be weakness because oftentimes when we hear calls for peace, what we hear are empty, hollow calls for unity. What we hear oftentimes is, is kind of a superficial plea for a, a conflict to come to an end. Oftentimes call, calls for peace come across in a very utopian, can't we all just get along type of tone. And so we need to understand that's not what Jesus intends by calling us to be peacemakers. Being a peacemaker, this work of peacemaking, it's not synonymous with appeasement. We're not ignoring truth. We're not ignoring reality. We're not laying down honesty. We're not laying down integrity. We're not laying down justice. A peacemaker is someone who pursues unity without sacrificing truth in the process. 
a couple years ago, I was having a lunch with a, with a pastor locally whose, whose denomination was going through a pretty ugly split, the, the denomination nationally as a whole. And uh, as we were sitting there at lunch, we were having some conversation about this because they had a big meeting coming up at the end of the week where uh, all of this, the fate basically of this denomination was going to be decided. And, and the division was not over insignificant things. Uh, we're not talking about like the color of the carpet and sanctuaries and what we wear on Sunday morning. It wasn't that type of stuff, styles of music, talking about major doctrinal division. Um, there, there were those within the denomination who uh, said that they were, were basically to the place they were now openly questioning the authority of scripture. Uh, they were rejecting teachings uh, re- related to biblical inerrancy. They were uh, rejecting the Bible's design for sex and gender and sexuality. And so these were not insignificant things. They were, they were key things that they really uh, those who were in the right needed to be divided on. And, and as we're sitting there having this conversation, he was just kind of lamenting his frustration because, uh, because he, as one of those who was wanting and desiring to cling to the word of God, was being labeled by those who had departed from truth as being divisive. We have to understand it, it is not those who cling to truth that are guilty of division. It is those who depart from truth who are guilty of division. It is not divisive to simply stand on the Bible and believe what Christians have always believed. It is divisive to depart from the truth and to depart from the saints that was, or from the truth that was once and for all passed down to the saints. And so while we were sitting there having this conversation, a member of his congregation actually came up to him and was asking about this meeting and, and just asked this very simple question. She said, is there any hope for unity when the meeting happens this week? And his answer might surprise you a little bit. He, he just very graciously, very humbly said, as things stand right now, No. And, and this took that person back a little bit. And the response is basically, but doesn't Jesus call us to be united? Doesn't Jesus call us to be one? And this was his response. I'm never going to forget his words. He said, it's not enough to be united in appearance. We have to be united in substance. And this is what Jesus is calling us to. Being a peacemaker, it's not about denying truth. It's not about compromising truth. It's not about compromising integrity or justice. It's the pursuit of unity, but not at the expense of truth. Jesus did not say, blessed are the peacekeepers. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Tony Morita has a great uh, short little book I'd encourage you to check out called Christ-Centered Conflict Resolution. Where in the book, he talks about the difference between someone who is a peacemaker and someone who's a peace faker. Peace fakers just want to pretend like everything's okay. And, and peace fakers will ignore the reality of a situation. Peace fakers will give up truth. They will compromise justice and integrity. So what is the difference between a peacemaker and a peacekeeper? Three key distinctions I think we need to pay attention to. Peacemakers address conflict. Peacekeepers avoid conflict. Peacemakers will engage opponents. Peacekeepers evade opponents. They'll avoid them at all costs. To quote my friend here, peacemakers pursue unity in substance. Peacekeepers maintain unity in appearance. And that is why ultimately, church, peacemaking is noble and peacekeeping is naive. Jesus doesn't call us to be peacekeepers. Jesus calls us to be peacemakers. I've always loved uh, these words from Adrian Rogers. He says, it is better to be divided by truth than to be united in error. It is better to speak the truth that hurts and then heals than falsehood that comforts and then kills. And listen, if that still sounds divisive to you this morning, just turn with me in your Bible just a few pages over to Matthew chapter 10. I want us to look very briefly at Matthew 10, 34 to 39. 
And I want us to look together at this particular passage because Jesus is going to say something in this passage that's going to sound contradictory to what he's initially saying in the Sermon on the Mount. But it gives us a holistic understanding of what it means for us to truly be peacemakers. Jesus affirms this, that we do not pursue peace at all costs. He affirms that we do not pursue peace at the expense of truth. This is Matthew 10, 34 to 39. Jesus says to those listening, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. He says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So right away, we see even from the words of Jesus, we are not called to pursue unity at the expense of truth. You know, we joke about this sometimes, but like Matthew 10, this isn't one of those verses that you're going to see on a coffee cup, right? Like this is not a coffee cup verse. We don't see verses like Matthew 10 on coffee cups, on t-shirts, on bumper stickers. Like you don't want to wake up in the morning and you know, you're smelling the aroma of your coffee and right there printed on it, like, mm, Jesus came not to bring peace, but a sword, Right? Like we're not feeling that in the morning. And, and we joke about these things sometimes, but why will you never see that on a coffee cup? Why won't you see that on a t-shirt? Why won't you see that on a bumper sticker? Because unfortunately that version of Jesus does not match the version of Jesus that we have invented as a figment of our own imagination in order to accommodate all of our modern sensibilities. We don't like that version of Jesus. So we've invented a new one, a Jesus who's anti-conflict, a Jesus who does ignore substance, a Jesus who does ignore truth, a Jesus who would pursue unity at all costs. Truth by its very nature and definition is divisive. So the call to peacemaking is not the pursuit of unity at the expense of truth. And we're gonna see this next week as we wrap up the Beatitudes. What does the very next Beatitude go on to say? Blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are you when others revile you, slander you, utter all types of false things against you on my account. He goes on to tell them, rejoice and be glad for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Here's the reality. If you strive to be a peacemaker in a world that knows no peace, you will face the persecution of the world. And we'll see why here more in just a few moments. John Stott reflecting on this passage, he said, the visible unity of the church is a proper Christian quest, but only if unity is not sought at the expense of doctrine. Jesus prayed for the oneness of his people. He also prayed that they might be kept from evil and in truth. We have no mandate from Christ to seek unity without purity, purity of both doctrine and conduct. A call to unity without a commitment to truth is the advance announcement that the house is going to be built on sinking sand. Those who are making that call without a commitment to truth, they're just telling you right away, this house has no foundation. And you better believe that as soon as the winds start to blow, the house is going to fall. So a peacemaker is someone who does the hard work of pursuing reconciliation. A peacemaker knows eventually we got to pull the teeth. Eventually we've got to deal with the situation, but they don't do it at the expense of sacrificing truth. So that's who peacemakers are. That's what peacemaking is. Third question for us this morning, how then do we make peace? How are we called to make peace? We're going to look at this kind of from a big picture level, and then we're going to take this down uh, with some practical questions at the ground level. 
Now, biblically speaking, we are called to pursue peace in at least three primary arenas, three primary spheres where we are called to make peace. We see through scripture that we, are, we strive to make peace spiritually, and this is between ourselves and God. Here's the reality for us today. We cannot truly know peace for ourselves until we know the God of peace himself. Until we are first and foremost at peace with God, we will never truly be in peace with one another. And we can't truly know the peace of God as long as we remain at peace with our sins. We go back just to the very first week of this message series. We saw that Matthew 4, 17 is really the key to understanding the Sermon on the Mount. It's at Matthew 4, 17, we see what was at the foundation of everything that Jesus preached and taught. And this was the announcement from Jesus. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus made that announcement, he was announcing the terms of peace. The king of kings had arrived and he was going to build his kingdom, not by taking the life of his enemies, but by laying down his life so his enemies could be saved. Jesus was announcing the, turn, uh, the, the terms of peace. So the call to repent, it's a call to lay down your weapons. It's a call to stop resisting. It's a call to stop fighting. It is a call to stop running from God and to turn to him away from your sins and to put your faith in Jesus Christ. As long as we remain at peace with our sin, we remain engaged in war against God. So Jesus invites you today to lay down your weapons. He invites you to lay down your sin, to lay down your resistance, and to come to know his perfect peace through saving faith in the Prince of Peace. So we strive to make peace spiritually. We also strive to make peace evangelistically. So again, this is probably not the first thing that's gonna pop into our minds for most of us when we think about someone who is a peacemaker. But first and foremost, whether we understand this, or not, we're gonna see here in the next few minutes, first and foremost, the work of peacemaking is evangelistic. The primary way that we as followers of Christ are called to be peacemakers in this world is by sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. It's by sharing the gospel of Jesus. In Ephesians 6, the apostle Paul exhorts us to put on the full armor of God. This is Ephesians 6, 13. He, he says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and pay attention to this. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel. What's that word say? Of peace. The readiness given by the gospel of peace. That, that is what the shoes we are called to wear are called. Our shoes are the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So it's no surprise in Romans chapter 10 that Paul will go on to say this statement. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Anybody else in this room like grossed out by feet? Like feet is totally not your thing whatsoever. Michael on our staff hates feet. Like it's so funny. You should pick on him before you leave today. Michael, we talk about foot washing and stuff like that and you just test that guy's gag reflex. It's hilarious. Can't stand feet. But Jesus and Paul show us here like that there's actually a way for all feet to be beautiful. And, and it's if our feet are covered with the readiness that has been given by the gospel of peace. These are the shoes that we're called to wear as followers of Christ. Now, uh, history buffs in the room. Uh, during the Revolutionary War, the New England militia had a specially trained group of men who were trained to be dressed, armed, and engaged in combat on a moment's notice. And what was the nickname given to that group of men? They were the Minutemen. 
They were the Minutemen. That they could jump up and in, in a minute, in a, in a moment's notice, they could be fully dressed, fully engaged, boots on, weapon in hand, ready to engage the conflict, ready to engage in combat. By calling us to be peacemakers, Jesus is calling us to be gospel Minutemen. He's calling us to be gospel minute women, to be people who are living with our heads on a swivel. We, we are eager. We are ready to engage at the drop of a hat. At any given moment, we are eager to jump out of bed and rush out the door with the gospel of peace. And this is necessary because those apart from Christ remain in war against him, whether they know it or not. And we live in, in Beaufort and... Um, Still pretty much Bible Belt, even though the vast majority of our, of our community is unchurched and unreached with the gospel. Um, and, and what I have found to be true, we live in Buford for about nine years now. What I have found to be true in Buford, among those that I, in my sphere of influence who are not followers of Christ, I find this to be pretty true, is in our community, there's not really, from those who are unbelievers, an outright hostility to the gospel, but there is a large indifference to the gospel. So it's not like you share your faith with someone like that. You know, I think for the most part, like you're probably not going to get cussed out. I know there's some exceptions in there. You know, you're not necessarily going to have people who just, just get enraged with you in this moment, but there's going to be a very strong indifference. Buford's a type of community that, man, you, you kind of move here to, to live the easy life, to live a good life. And it's an easy community to live and say, hey, I kind of have everything. Tell me again why I need Jesus. It's, it's that type of, of community. It's not necessarily a hostility. There is an indifference. And so if you talk to most people who aren't believers, I, I don't think they're going to respond by talking about how they, how they hate God or they hate the church or they hate faith. It's just kind of, hey, that's good for you, but not necessarily good for me, not really my thing. It's an indifference. And they wouldn't say that they were hostile to God and to faith, but Scripture shows us that that's exactly what those who are far from Christ are whether they will admit this or not. Romans 8, 7 and 8, Paul says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We need to see this morning that those who reject Jesus Christ are incapable of experiencing true peace because their sin makes them enemies of God. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ, please hear my heart when I tell you that yes, your sin does put you against God, but he's not the king who comes to establish his kingdom by taking your life. He's come to establish his kingdom by laying down his life for yours so that you can be saved in spite of your sin against him. That's the type of king that he is. Helpless to remedy this on their own. So, so what do we do as followers of Jesus? We put on the shoes of the gospel of peace and we run through the door to bring good news. So we bring peace spiritually and evangelistically. Third, we, we are called to pursue peace relationally between ourselves and others. We pursue peace spiritually, that's between us and God. We pursue peace evangelistically, that is, that is between God and man, those who are far from Christ. We're called to pursue peace relationally between ourselves and others. For followers of Christ, there are three parts that are being played in every single relationship. Every relationship for us as believers has three parts. There is God playing his part. There is the other party playing their part. And then there's you playing your part. Now, here's the good news for us. We can always trust that God's going to do his part. Amen. Like he's, he's always going to do his part. His word never returns void. His promises are always sure. He's present with us always to the end of the age. God will never fail. He will always do his part. But here's where it gets a little bit tricky for us. The other person is responsible for doing their part and you and I have absolutely no control over their response. 
And this is difficult. The hard truth is that you and I cannot force someone to do their part. So if you desire reconciliation, but someone starts ghosting you, like they just kind of functionally cut you out of their life, they refuse to talk, they refuse to engage, they refuse to have honest discussion, they refuse to reconcile, you and I have no control over this whatsoever. But we can control the third part because that's our part. And here's the wisdom that's given to us from the Apostle Paul from Romans 12. Paul says this, if possible. Now, what does that word possible tell us? Sometimes it might not be possible, right? He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you. If you're like a a circle things in your Bible, underline things in your Bible, I would really encourage you to underline those words, so far as it depends on you. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So two things about this very, very quickly here. This term peacemaker implies for us there are going to be moments when peace is absent. There's a void of peace and peace needs to be made. Peace is going to have to be created. But then the language, if possible, from Romans 12 implies there are going to be moments when peace between two parties is not possible at all. And Jesus affirmed this in Matthew chapter 10. That's why we looked at that passage. There's going to be points in time where your faith in Jesus Christ, your allegiance to Jesus Christ, it may divide your home. It may divide a marriage. It may divide a relationship. It may divide a friendship. And it's going to be costly. Again, we'll see next week that we will be persecuted at times, even for our desire to make peace with others. But understand, there is absolutely no relationship in this world worth preserving if it costs you fidelity to Jesus. We are called first and foremost to be faithful to Jesus Christ. He will do his part. We can do ours. We have to trust the other person to do theirs. So how do we know if we've done our part? How do I know if I have done as much as it depends on me? Let me list several diagnostic questions we could ask ourselves. First question is pretty simple. Have you prayed for them? Have you prayed for this person? And I don't mean, have you prayed, Lord, help them to see that I'm right and they're wrong. That's an easy prayer, right? Have you prayed for them? Have you prayed for their heart? Have you prayed for their family? Have you prayed for their home? Have you prayed for their welfare and their their well-being? Have you prayed for them? Have you gotten on your knees, particularly if it's a brother or sister in Christ, and and interceded for them on their behalf, even if they're your enemy, because this is the work Jesus calls us to do? Second question, have I acknowledged, confessed, and repented of my own sin? We'll see this in just a couple of weeks as as we continue studying the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says there's, there's a type of person, we don't want to be this person, who is so focused on the speck that's in somebody else's eye that they're missing the gigantic log that's sticking out of theirs. Have I examined myself? Have I examined my heart? Have I acknowledged my own sin? Have I confessed my sin? Have I repented of my sin? Third question, have I forgiven them for ways they have sinned against me? Have I forgiven them for ways they've sinned against me? If, if forgiveness has been asked, but you have denied it to them, or even told them that they're forgiven without actually truly forgiving them, we're going to have to deal with this before there can be true unity. Next question, have I asked for forgiveness for ways I have sinned against them? So if you've sinned against your neighbor, you've sinned against a brother or sister in Christ, acknowledge this and, and understand repentance before them, asking forgiveness is not, I'm sorry, but... It's not, I'm sorry that you feel that way. True request for forgiveness says, I'm sorry. 
I was wrong. I have sinned against you. I have sinned against God. It's, it's not, I'm sorry I did this, but you shouldn't have done that. It's, I was wrong. Have we asked for forgiveness? Next question, have I spoken the truth in love? It's easy when we're heated to speak truth. It's, it's much more difficult in those moments to do it in love. And it's not that our world isn't capable of, of speaking in truth, but, but where our world is really struggling right now is with that in love piece. We're called as followers of Christ to speak the truth in love. Next question, have I made good faith efforts to sit down with them and have an honest conversation? Have I made good faith efforts to sit down with them in person to have an honest conversation? So I'm going to press into this a little bit this morning in kind of our text, text message kind of, kind of email generation. I don't believe texting someone or emailing them is doing as much as it depends on you. In, in the age of technology that we have between just picking up the phone and calling or, uh, or, or um, you know, having FaceTime or, or Zoom, there, there's really no excuse for us not having personal conversation with one another. We need to be doing as much as it depends on us. You'll, you'll hear oftentimes you know, studies that say anywhere between 70 and 80% of communication is nonverbal. So here's what happens when you text or email something that could be tense. If that other person knows that it's tense, they're very likely to read a lot of negativity into that conversation. I'm going to give you a really silly example. I was having a conversation with someone a few years ago who was uh, planning a birthday party for, for one of her kids. And uh, several people had still not RSVP'd, and she was kind of just expressing some frustration. She was like, it's hard to know how to plan. And, and then I saw her a couple, weeks, or a couple days later. I was like, hey, how's the birthday party going? She was like, well, I finally heard from my friend, and she said, sorry, I can't come. And I said, okay, time out, time out. It was a text message. So you know she said it with that facial expression. Like, you know she said it with that tone of voice. You know she said it by like throwing her head, like you know all of that just by reading a text message, right? But guys, this is what we do in our sin. Our, our sin forces us to assume the worst about others. And we have to recognize this reality. People need to see your facial expressions. They need to hear the tone of your voice. They need to see tears in your eyes. They, they need to, to see the brokenness that, that's in your heart. When we lose the, this relational element of things, the conflict tends to just get worse and worse. Have you made a true good faith effort to sit down? Next question, have you sought the counsel of other faithful brothers and sisters in Christ and involved them in efforts to reconcile? Have you asked their counsel? Have you asked them to speak objectively in your situation? Have you invited others to maybe even be a third party to mediate a conflict between you and someone else? Last question, have I trusted God to work in their hearts or am I relying on my own wisdom and strength? If you're in a fractured relationship or friendship and, and you desire reconciliation, but it's not happening, ask yourself this very simple question. Have I done as much as it depends on me? If possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And if you have done as much as you possibly can, then you put it in the hands of God. You trust him to do his part. You continue to do their part. And Lord willing, one day they will come to do their part. You know, one of the commitments of our church membership covenant says, we will be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. If you get finicky about things like membership covenants, understand that's just a direct quote of Ephesians chapter four, verse three. We want to be a congregation that is eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the, body, in the bond of peace because Jesus takes the unity of his body very, very seriously. Satan is always striving to, to divide from within the body. He's a wolf in sheep's clothing. So he tries to do his work of disrupting and destroying the church from the inside out. 
And you need to know that he is trying to do this work in every sphere of your life so that your relationship with the Lord will be hindered. So husbands and wives, understand, if you are harboring bitterness against one another, hatred, anger, resentment, and animosity, holding grudges, your worship is being hindered as long as that's allowed to remain. Kids and students in the room, if, if you are regularly disobeying your parents, if you're regularly hearing what they say and then doing the opposite, it's keeping you from truly knowing God. For all of us in the room as brothers and sisters gathered in Christ, if you're holding on to grudges, you're holding on to resentments, if we're gossiping about one another, slandering each other's names, the name of Jesus Christ is being maligned and our public witness is being harmed. Jesus shows us if there's division within the body, we are called to pursue peace with urgency. We'll see this in just a few weeks, but Matthew 5, 23. Jesus shows us, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. There is something more pressing today than you checking the next box in your Bible reading plan and it's being reconciled to your brother and sister in Christ. There's something with greater urgency than you dropping a giving envelope in the tower, Jesus says, giving a gift. There's something of greater urgency and it's being reconciled to your brother or sister in Christ. Maybe if it's even someone in this room, what you need to do today is, is not take communion at the end, but to grab that brother or sister by the shirt sleeve, pull them back to the prayer area and pursue reconciliation as brothers and sisters in Christ. Because Jesus says that's our play. The, the, the unity of the body, this is an urgent matter that Jesus calls us to address quickly. We run, we don't walk to resolve it. So spiritually, evangelistically, relationally, these are the arenas where God calls us to be gladiators of his peace. So fourth question, final question this morning. How then will peacemakers be known? How will peacemakers be known? Jesus says in verse nine, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Now, much like the last two verses we've studied, I wanna urge you uh, to not make the mistake of interpreting this passage legalistically. Because at first glance, it, it seems like maybe this passage is reading, if I am a peacemaker, if I do the work of peacemaking, then eventually God will bestow on me the title of being one of his children. And, and that's not what Jesus is saying here in this passage. That's the reverse gospel. As followers of Jesus, we don't work for our position. We work from our position. We saw this week one. Jesus says, blessed are you. That word blessed, it means a lot more than happy. It, it means that you have been accepted by the Father. You have been affirmed by the Father. You've been approved by the Father. You belong to him. His blessing is now upon you. And so Jesus isn't saying be a peacemaker and this will earn you a title over time. What Jesus is saying here is that by our peacemaking efforts and sharing the gospel and working to reconcile others, the world will look at us and say, that one belongs to God. If God is the God of all peace and if Jesus is the Prince of peace and we're called to be those who are makers of peace, then what naturally flows from this is that we will bear an unmistakable resemblance to God. The world will look at them and say, those are the sons of God by our efforts in making peace. Now, I want to get in the weeds here, but I do want to make a really brief textual comment because it's important for us. Uh, many translations, you might see this if you have one of these open this morning, um, King James, New International, uh, New Living Translation. They've translated Matthew 5, 9 with a gender neutral term, uh, children instead of sons. 
Now, there are places in Bible translation this is called for. This is not one of those places, and I want to show you two reasons why. Uh, the simplest reason is that the Greek term here is huios, which means sons, and it's not techna, which means children. So right away, the language does not call from a translation from sons to children. But there's a second reason that I think is much more deeper and significant than this. D.A. Carson has noted that in Jewish thought, son often means bears the meaning of partaker of character in a way that the word children doesn't quite do so. So while children emphasizes family, sons in Jewish culture emphasized likeness. So, so follow with me here for just a second. Anybody here have a member of your family that is completely different than every other member of your family? Is anybody here the member of your family that's completely different than every other member of your family? I'm a solid middle child. I'm one of those. So, so different than the rest of my family. Right? Like just because you're a member of the family, like just because you are one of the children does not mean you're like everybody else that's in your family. So it's, it's, it's possible for you to be in the family, but unlike the family. What this word sons carries with it is the weight of likeness. And here's why that's good for men and women that we leave this passage translated as sons. When we work as peacemakers, we bear the resemblance and the likeness of the maker of all peace. That's who Jesus calls us to be. As we strive to make peace, others come to understand the maker of peace. And this is the work that Christ calls us to do because this is the work that Christ has done for us. Friends, whenever Jesus saw us in hostility against him, whenever God saw us in rebellion against him, he did as much as it depended on him to make peace with us. He gave us Jesus. God could not have done more. He could not have given more than he gave us when he gave us Jesus. He did as much as it depended upon him. In Colossians 1, Paul says that Jesus has made peace with us by the blood of his cross. And because God has made it possible for us to be reconciled to him, it's also possible for us to be reconciled to others. And when we carry out the work of reconciliation, spiritually and evangelistically and relationally, what will happen is the world will see us and they'll know that we belong to Jesus Christ. This doesn't involve a lot, it require a lot of explanation this morning. We live in a world that is, it is so hostile right now. I mean, anybody else just like in, in your work, in your life, does it feel like everybody's just ready to snap at any given moment? Like we're just wound so tight right now. If you want to see human depravity on full display, you need to look no further than your neighborhood's Facebook HOA page, right? I mean, it's a, it's a mess out there, right? I mean, the hostilities come out real quickly, real, real quickly. And Jesus calls us to be the opposite of this. Our world has plenty of peace breakers, our world has plenty of peace fakers. Christ has called us today to be peace makers. And so four very simple questions I want to ask you as we wrap up this morning. Do you need to make peace with God? Because until you're at peace with God, you will never be at peace with your fellow mankind. Do you need to make peace with someone else? Do you need to make peace with someone else? Do you know someone who lacks peace with God do you know brothers and sisters in Christ potentially who are divided and is the Lord calling you to help broker peace between them? Do you need to make peace with God? Do you know someone who does? Do you need to make peace with a brother or sister? Do you need to help a brother or sister make peace with one another? Blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called sons of God. Will you bow your heads with me this morning? 
as we uh, prepare our hearts and minds to come to the table for the Lord's Supper, I, I just want to use those four questions to frame our time of reflection here. Are you at peace with God? Jesus has declared the terms of peace. He invites you to repent of your sin, to turn from your sin, to call on his name in faith and be saved. He does not build his kingdom by taking the lives of his enemies. He is building his kingdom and has built his kingdom by laying his own life down. Are you at peace with God? Do you know someone else who's not at peace with God? Will you intercede for them this morning? The question is not, are you called? The question is, will you go? Will you run to them? Will you cover your feet with the readiness of the gospel of peace so that they can make peace with God? Do you need to make peace with others? With a brother, sister in Christ, with a neighbor, with a friend, with a family member? Have you done as much as it depends on you to live at peace with all people? Do you know a brother, sister in Christ who is divided from another brother, sister in Christ? How is the Lord calling you to broker peace between them today? To intercede for them, to plead to them that their worship would not be hindered? As we prepare for the Lord's Supper, Paul reminds us that we should never take this lightly. We should never do this out of empty rhythm, out of empty routine. We, we do this weekly, but that doesn't excuse monotony. We should never do this without remembering the gravity of what it costs God to save us. Jesus has come to make peace with us through the blood of the cross. And that's what we remember at the table. So, so what words, what actions, what habits, what attitudes, what behaviors, what desires, what motives, what is in you, friends, that is not of Christ? Let's confess our sin this morning. Let's lay that at his feet. Ask him for a heart of genuine repentance that we would be reconciled, restored to him. come to the table repenting and lamenting, but we also come to the table worshiping and rejoicing. God, at the greatest possible cost to himself, as much as it depended on him, he has made peace with us. And he calls us to live at peace with others. So Father, we thank you, we praise you, we rejoice in the death of your son, Jesus. We thank you that he has made it possible for us to be at peace with you. And Lord, in turn, we desire to leave this place today making peace with others by sharing the good news of your gospel, by pursuing reconciliation and peace in relationships and conflict. Lord, will you be glorified through our actions as we go this week, that we would be peacemakers who reflect the maker of all peace so that the world will know you, that they will see us and know that we are the sons of God. We belong to you. We'll be rest in that identity today and rejoice that you've made it possible for us to embrace. So as we continue this morning, Father, to confess, to repent, to lament, to grieve our sin, but also to rejoice, to worship, to thank you for the cross and the empty tomb. 
Let it all be a sweet fragrance and aroma to you today as we respond. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen.